because there's so much that we can take away around sort of like self-empowerment, you know, feeling intellectually strong because of the decision-making piece of the game, feeling comfortable in our skin because it's a sport that does not exclude you around body and the way that some sports can. Can you bounce? Hi, welcome to Finding Your Mana, a podcast hosted by Tori Rugby. Join us as we talk about purpose and passion, rugby, travel, style, fitness, and all things sport. Hi, everyone. This is Ali from Tory Rugby. I'm joined today by Farrah Douglas, former USA Eagle and national team coach. Getting ready for today, I sat down and started thinking about our backstories, our rugby origin stories, if you will. And we have a lot in common, which is probably why she is one of my best friends. Our rugby careers look similar. We were both track athletes, both throwers, high jumpers. We both ran the relay. Uh, We started in the backs. We both played center, fullback, just at different times in life. We moved to the forwards at prop, and that's where Ferris sort of settled. I bounced back to other positions around the pack, eventually settled at lock. And at present, here we are, both collegiate women's rugby coaches. She's coaching NCAA and the Naira. I'm on a different path with NCR, but ultimately, we're pretty similar. That being said, welcome. I am so excited to have one of my best friends, mentors, and such an inspirational person in the world of women's rugby here with me today. Ali, you forgot to tell people that we share a love of unicorns. We do Mm -hmm. share an entire love of unicorns. And all things sparkle. Yes. I feel like important to add. That That is entirely important to add. Sparkly things and unicorns. They're Yes, yes. So, with that introduction, why don't you tell me how old you were when you started playing rugby? I mean, I have to do math. Um, 17 or 18, I think. Because okay. I picked it up in college. Right. And that was at, that was at Bowdoin, right? Yes. Um, I had gone to Bowdoin to a science major and um, run cross-country and indoor and outdoor track. And I stuck with indoor and outdoor track. Um, that's where I was a, a multi-sport, a multi-event athlete. I did not stay with cross country. Um, it's funny because I just did an interview yesterday where we talked about this. And the way I described it is in high school as a cross country runner, I was fairly competitive in the sense that I finished in our top seven. I scored points. Right. And then I got to college at a D3 NESCAT school that is even to this day, very strong in their um, cross-country and track programs. And I was, um, there were not girls like me on the cross-country team. And by that, I mean, it wasn't even just like the culture, like color thing. It was bodies. You know, I am definitely not your stereotypical uh, distance runner. When you look at me, you might guess sprinter, maybe middle distance. Um, I'm average for height, but I have a fairly, what I call like thick athletic build. And when you think of a, you know, your stereotypical distance runner, they're kind of like long and thin with a Lanky. lot. Yeah. And, but like there's muscle tone, but they're, you know, you think of them as having like low body fat. Freshman, Farah, not me. That is, even though I run as much as I do now, like 
I'm on day 334 of a run streak and I, you know, training for a marathon, I still don't look like a traditional distance runner. And, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old and you're going through this whole like adjustment of like being comfortable in your skin and that whole transition to your first year of college, um, I'm the team fat kid. I don't like this. (laughs) And they were good. And not only was it the team fat kid, I was also the slow kid. (laughs) So I was like, coach peace. I'll see you at indoor track. It just wasn't my thing. I was super miserable. It's the first time I quit something. Um, and that's how I found rugby. They were recruiting in the dorm and I was like, what is this? And they said, it's like soccer and football. And I had wanted to play football in high school and my mother was not having that either. So I immediately was like, Ooh, the parental unit will not like this. I'm in. (laughs) All the things to make our parents upset, right? Oh, yeah. When they I can't mean, control you know, you've made it. decisions like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially when they can't control it. You're like, I'm at college. You can't be mad. <laughs> nope. As long as my grades are going well, you can't say anything. <laughs> but that's okay. Hannah will give you karma around all of that when she she hits high school and college. And For those of you who don't things. know, Hannah is my middle child. She is almost 12 going on 36. So yes, that's accurate. <laughs> what, what do you think, at what point do you think you realize that you weren't just good, but like national team good? That did not happen until after my transition into the front row. Um, I left Bowdoin, Mary Beth, who was my coach at the time and is still the um, head coach of the program now, um, and it is also an NCAA program. It went, was one of the first schools to go varsity. Um, Correction, to go NCAA, because there is a difference. Um, And she helped me find a program, and uh, that was Chicago North Shore. And I played that first season that I was in graduate school in the centers. And um, for those who've played with me or played against me, I like contact. um, That's kind of like an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, But I also was fairly good at the concept of go forward because I just kind of, I think Kathy Flores once described me as like flailing through contact because I just refused to allow someone to tackle me. Of course, there are some individuals in this world, they hit you and then you're just like, oh my God, I just died. Uh, Pedro Knight, Maggie Alfonsi. Um, there's like a video. I'm part of Maggie Alfonsi's like IRB personality of the year clips for 2010 where she laid me out in our game. It was awful. I came back to all these text messages that were like, are you alive? So (laughs) there were moments where I didn't flail so effectively. Um, So I was, I was like contact prone and my coaches at the time, Mark Santiago and Kristen Lewis were like, so you're a bit of a goon. We want to try you in the forwards. And at that point, I was like, okay, I didn't care where I played as long as the cleats were on my feet and I was somewhere on the field. I just wanted to play. And, you know, I was always that player that would go in in a B-side game. If the other team needed B-side players, like I would just play, 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 play until you told me I could not. So wasn't a thing for me. I was like, okay, cool. I don't know how to prop, but I'm in. Um, so that spring <laughs> we came and, you know, I, I had some really good um, mentors on North Shore. 
that really helped develop me. Mary Swanstrom was one of our locks at the time, and she was a really great type five big sister for me, kind of like helping me learn to take the things that I did well in contact and kind of translate them into scrum technique. And of she's course, having Tristan. She's an amazing mentor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's <laughs> one of my most favorite humans in this world. Um, she's amazing uh, in all that she does. Um, so, you know, I, I, and it was a big learning curve for me because at that time, there were some really great forward players that were located in the Midwest. So at that time, Phaedra was still playing prop for the U.S. Cynthia Gergi, who was, I believe, a hooker for us, was there. Meredith Ottens um, was playing for Minnesota. There just was a like a pocket of powerful, strong, vetted forwards in the Midwest. And so you have this like kind of I was um, a heavy back in when I graduated and I started playing the centers from North Shore. I was five six and have bounced between like two oh five and two ten. Great weight for the front row, but then I made that transition and I got fit because Tristan sat me down and said, "You know, you have some some skill at this." And I dropped forty pounds, and then everybody was like, "Oh my God, you're so small for a prop," which forced technique. So having such a strong, strong competition around us um, as a club and the individuals that were playing in my position and just in the Fords in general in the Midwest at that time. And I got picked up in, I want to say the next year. No, it was like, I think, yeah, 2001, the next year by the Midwest. Roger Brugermeyer was our head coach um, and I got invited to a Midwest camp. And that sort of was the beginning um, as that selection was happening, Tristan and Mark were having conversations with me about potential. And we talked about trying to get me to go to New Zealand as a player, which is something I regret not doing, but I have done that as a coach. So I've fulfilled the dream, but I came back and I'm not still there. So right. that's slightly problematic, but we'll deal with that another time. Um, so it was when I first started playing for the Midwest that I realized, hey, I might actually be really good at this if I like hunker down and I put some focus and dedication into it. Cause that's something I think as an athlete, I had not done yet. I was always skillful, a bit gifted in athleticism, not like X factor, but you know, I was not an average athlete, but rugby was the first time that I found something where I actually wanted to work at it, if that makes sense. So when was your first cap? And I know that you know this because you had to look it up the other day. Yeah, thanks for calling me out. Um, <laughs> and December 15th, 2007. And <laughs> the reason why I had to look it up is, I, I mean, I remember the tour because it was quite memorable for any of us that were on it. We nicknamed it The Plague. Um, it was in England, you know, at that time, most of the the trips abroad that we did um, as a team were usually England or Canada um, because they were affordable trips for us. Um, you know, it's exciting to see how much travel that between sevens and fifteenths of women have are able to experience now um, in terms of exposure to rugby abroad and just the ability to play com more competitive matches at that level it just better prepares us. So it was England in December. So it was hella cold. Um, we had a warm up match 
against the nomads, which was like, I believe I'd probably explain this like the precursor to the female barbarians. There's like 400 and something caps to our 40 on our team. Um, so needless to say, it was a battle. It was never not a battle. And the scoreline never reflected the output that we had as a, as a team and as athletes. Um, so, you know, we battled it out and got ourselves ready for the test match. And on that day, on a roster of 22, because I don't think that we rostered 23 then, I'd have to look it up. So my old age does not remember that. Sorry. Um, we had 19 new cats in that match. And I, I started at um, Loosehead Prop, and that was my first cap. And it was, we were at RAF Holton in England, and it was freezing. Um, there was worry about hypothermia. The, like, locker rooms were too far away from the field to go to them at halftime. So you're, you know, you start playing and you're warm, mm-hmm. and then halftime rolls around, and you got to go up into the, like, concrete bleachers where there's really no cover. Right. And then the cold settles into your bones and it says, Hey, what's up, buddy? And then you got to start to play again. <laughs> and you're like dead. And you don't have the same like warm up because you're like, you were cold ish. You played, you were warm, and now you like sat in all of it. And some of the adrenaline has gone away and like the soreness is mixing with the cold and they're high fiving mm-hmm. each other. And it just was like, ah. And, you know, and it was, you know, the same like ratio of caps to ours was like, you know, that 40 number to their like four to 500. And it was, you know, as a player, it's just kind of like overwhelming. You're like, you know, holy crap. Like this team together has, I mean, even individual players on their squad had more caps than we did collectively as a team. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of daunting. Yeah. And at the same time that this, you know, we're on this like tour, there was a like a virus going through the team. So, you know, every day we walk down the mile to get to practice from the dorms we're staying at and someone else would have to go back because they were sick. And it was just, it was like, you know, you got to walk a mile to get to practice. You know, it sounds like the stories your parents used to tell you, but super true. It was freezing out. We lack the same kind of international experience that they did. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and this is like the first year in a buildup for a new like World Cup cycle. So like everyone's eager to make a statement, right? Because you want to stay in this four-year cycle because 2010, we're already thinking about it. Right. So there's just like a lot, like a lot of things like, like happening. And it was, it was, you know, being on tour is it's stressful um, as a player and, you know, in hindsight now as a coach, um, it's even more stressful because the results and the performance at the end of the day fall on the coach's shoulders. And that's something I think I didn't realize till not even coaching high school, like not until probably I, like I, I took our USU 18 girls, high school Americans on our first like international tour. And it's like, yeah, Whoa, you think it's stressful as a player. So there's just a lot, a lot happening, a lot happening. So when did you actually make, when did you actually make that transition to coaching? So that's an interesting one because um, I actually first started coaching rugby in 2004 at Noble Street Charter School, which is now Noble Street is like a multi-campus school in um, Chicago, Illinois. And they, and so the way they set up is like each campus has team 
and the teams compete against each other, like within a school competition. Right, like like a um, mural, right? Similar, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if they compete within Illinois state championship or not. I'm pretty far removed from Urfu and Carfu, which is Chicago area rugby football mm-hmm. unit, because um, I left Chicago in 2009. But in 2004, I coached there with Pam Kosanke and Nobi Takaki, who is still playing for North Shore and is um, one of their um, like executive leaders for the team. Um, so like when, you know, at that time, the girls were signing up for it as like an elective class, similar to probably like a PE class or something. And we would have our rugby sessions at like 7am at this like sort of little park that wasn't too far away from campus. And this is, you know, it's like an inner city school. So the majority of our girls um, were of color because um, Noble Street, the campus that we were at, um, it's in a, I think the population, like in terms of the neighborhood, was pretty high in like Latino and Hispanic. So we tended to have a lot of girls in the team um, representing that de- demographic. So that was pretty cool. Um, and I think just the idea that like these girls signed up to take a sport that they didn't really know a lot about and yeah. were come, you know, going to practice at 7 a.m. Like, and it's part of their school day. Um, right. If we could do that for our high school teams now, like, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I think it like the, um, academy systems in England for the men do really well is create those partnerships like a local school so that rugby is part of their day of course you know the system's different because these you know kids are trying to get contracts that they're going to get paid but like that like you know when you think of like big picture goals that's pretty that's a pretty cool thing to be moving in that direction which is why I think within the women's game the NCAA initiative is really important because you know I think the women's game is where we can look to those academy systems as like models for how we can continue to develop and grow the women's side of the game and you know I like I mean imagine like ARPTC partnering with like um a local school like high school in Korea and what does ARPTC stand for for those people who don't know uh see if I can not mess this up so Jules doesn't come and kill me (laughs) Um, It is American Rugby Pro Training Center. That's right. (laughs) You're getting quizzed today. Allie is going to quiz you. (laughs) So here's a tough question. Was there ever like a time when you were in the pool that you had like kind of a profound aha experience that kind of changed your views on being an eagle? Um. That is a difficult question. I, like as a like in the moment, I don't I don't think so um, because uh, you know I feel like it's a pointed question because of everything that is currently going on in our country right now. Um, but I I think at the time that I was playing, I it wasn't until really after I retired from the U.S. and then started to reflect on things that I think I had any profundity around my experience just as a you know a female in a sport and the differences in the way that gender and sport is dealt with here in the U.S. Um, and then even like around race and you know I think part of that for me is also probably connected to like the slow role I had in my personal life and kind of coming to realizations around that Mm -hmm. because it wasn't until college my college experience that like I had this aha moment like oh yeah you're mixing your mom is white and your family is mostly white and you grew up middle class in a public school that had a whole lot of things um but homegirl 
you're not white, you know, and it just, you know, I think it just, it depends on like, sort of like your contact. So I never, because it took me a really long time to think through a lens of color. And, and I don't say that to say that like, that's how I see everything, but I just, I think it's the reflection back on the experience is where I have these moments where I'm like, oh, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It really does. Um, the world is different. Yeah. So like, I, you, you know, I mean, I think it, like you look at things now and it agree, agree or disagree with me on this. I'd say that like activism in people's individual voices and the performance around self is way more acutely happening and developing around us in this modern moment than it was 10 years ago. Oh, yes. And I think that, you know, I think that that like definitely affects like whether I I had an aha moment. So I think if I took myself then and I were a player in the pool now, I think that the experience around aha would be very, very different because the world and the game is very different. And like where all of those pieces, where all those pieces are fitting, you know, and also it's also a product of like the environment that you're from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, and the experience, like, because you know, there's, I, I want to say at the time I played, there weren't a lot of faces that looked like Fabian and I over time. I mean, you have, you know, there are players that were there, like Kenya Warner, Tyshawn Henry, then you've got Phaedra, Anisha, Natalie Marchino. So you've got, you know, we are there peppered through the team. Um, but I don't know, like the I never thought about our visibility or invisibility in a way that like as a coach looking at things now and how I approach like recruiting around my team and how I deal with my team and issues around diversity in this in a, in a way that I thought about it then and maybe that's you know a moment comes out of sort of the privilege my experience might have afforded me having spent a greater portion of my life as you know a mixed child not having to not necessarily not having to, but not directly really seeing myself as a person of color for a long time, because it just wasn't something my mom talked about. And she probably didn't talk about it because how does my blonde, blue-eyed mother sit down and look at me to try to explain how I'm different than she is? Like, it's a, it's a really hard conversation to have. Yeah. And that, and that, I'm 43 and I'm pretty sure that my mother and I have not had a conversation around that or talked about what that was like for my brother and I growing up. That's, but I mean, that's, probably a really hard conversation for her to have it just in that space anyways because she can't she can't she she probably wants to understand but she can't yeah I mean well you know like typical um I mean I feel like (laughs) having been at the house with you you go through this with a certain level with Hannah where there's like this like like where you can't you're just not communicating it's like she's speaking Italian and you're speaking German and it's like (laughs) everything is lost in translation and very often that still happens with my mom and I so the things that she could not understand like what motivated me or why there was interest or why I might react the way I did was always a difficult conversation so sports was hard for her because she is not a sports person she doesn't not like sports but you know she's the second oldest of nine and there are four girls all of them were athletes except for my mom right that's so 
my like the passion I had around rugby when I found it was something that she struggled with. Um, and she struggles with a lot of sort of like the political, social, economic things that are happening in the world. And sometimes my reaction to it. So like where we struggled the most was around rugby and sort of like what I'll call it my, my racial awakening when I was in college, that realization that no matter what I did, I would be viewed first through the lens of color and kind of coming to terms with that. And then that whole identity crisis is happening because, you know, I have friends whose family will talk to me over the phone and assume that I am very much Caucasian. They meet me. Or when I went to stay with my best friend Jasmine's family and for a break and her grandmother, um, yelled at me for most of the time we were there because I did not speak Spanish and she could not understand how I didn't speak my native language. And no matter how many times we tried to explain to her, I was not Puerto Rican, it didn't work. Or the fascination that people had with me the first time I went to New Zealand because it was hard to place me because of my physical features and my hair. Um, I'm from Massachusetts, but I don't have a Massachusetts accent. Thank God. You know, so I've always kind of like, you know, to, to have some, ambiguousness and that sense around your identity at a time when you're trying when you know college when you're really coming to terms with who you are was it it was a difficult time especially around race and my mother just did not know how to have conversations with me and I was angry a lot of the time which is probably why contact was like a thing for me um but and, and even to this day we still don't I mean we will kind of skirt around those issues but we don't like yeah, that's it. That's not, nope, nope, nope. So speaking of minority and things like that, for a sport that is as body inclusive, gender inclusive, sexual preference and identity inclusive as rugby is, do you think that the expense of our sport excludes minority groups? just based on how expensive rugby actually is, not the fact that you can throw a ball around or run around on your bare feet, but actually what rugby costs to play. Do you think that it excludes minorities? Um, I, th I, I think that's a tricky question. Well, it's a, it's a tricky question with tricky answers because I think it also, it depends on like geographically where a program is. Okay. Um, who's resourcing like the program. Right, because you have programs like play rugby, um, girls in rugby, um, and then you have programs that are being funded through different types of community, government, federal, like development grants, etc., that provide resources for those children that don't have that you know that don't have access. So give something for the have-nots. Right. Um, so I would say at a grass roots community level no um i think when you start talking about getting into development and high performance pathways and i put that in quotation because in the u.s like what does that mean there are so many like designer pop-up overnight academies and quote-unquote skill development that are coming and they're it our sport is a pay-to-play model mm -hmm. very much like lacrosse is travel right. soccer travel basketball. So right. what I think when you start talking about like, Hey, my goal is to play this at an upper elite all-star level, whatever that means, then access to monetary funds around resources can become an issue. Right. And, you know, we're in the 
the decade of like GoFundMe for everything. Like the number of times I've seen someone put a GoFundMe page when we were, you know, it would be in a World Cup cycle and someone would put have a GoFundMe together to support their eagle journey. And I, I'd be like, wait a minute, they're in the pool? Who is this person? You know, and so you, you get a lot of that, like athletes that want things because, um, you know, we're a consumer capitalist economy. And to get the things that we want, even something like playing for a team often comes at a cost. Right. So I think at some point, your ability to have access to resources that are attached to money can become an issue. And I don't, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily like particular just to the U.S., um, I think that at some level, most countries deal with that. Uh, so okay. yes, but I would also say that like, you know, I, I'm not saying that like these like skill development academies that are, you know, popping up are bad things because they're resources. Um, and there are also free resources that people can have access to like the World Wide web, Google it you know, YouTube, people do post a lot of like free content as well. So like, I, by, by no means am I saying like academy systems are bad because that's just part of like the high performance, like world. Nature of it, yeah. Yeah. I just think that like, I think in my mind, when I think of an academy, having gone over to the UK as number of times as I've had and shadowed the programs that I've had, that we have very few true academy systems here in the US. Um, what we have are, I don't know what the word is that I would use for them because now I define academy based on what the academy system looks like in the UK. So I think what we have is a lot of like skill, like, you know, like when, like I'm a track star and I want to work on my footwork. Like I go to like Don Beebe's house of speed to work on speed and power and an explosion, um, which I actually... <laughs> funny I did <laughs> so like you know and that's like um like I feel like really like specific so doing skill development and high performance training that's like sport specific almost like a concierge yeah it's not to me it's not really like an academy like an academy is like this like well-rounded multi-dimensional environment that is providing you with sort of like the full picture. So, you know, you've got your nutrition, you have your skill development, your S and C, the intellectual piece of your sport, um, the mental health piece of your sport, like the mental skills training, right. On time balance, um, putting together transition plans for you for what happens when you're coming back from injury or you've retired. Like it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's so much more encompassing of not the sport specific skill so much as it is about the athlete within the sport, the sport within the world, the athlete within the world, if that makes sense. To me, that's an academy that is covering everything in the development of an athlete that is not just like, oh, hey, I'm going to teach you how to pass a 20 meter spin pass with 90% accuracy. That's not an academy. Yeah, I completely agree. So bringing things back a little bit, um, I'm going to ask you another toughie. If you could change one thing about U.S. rugby, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, Just one. Just one. Just one. Just one. (laughs) 
Oh, this is, this is a hard one because like, I feel torn because there are two voices inside me that well, are talking. Give us two. Give us two. Um, well, of course, as like a, like a former national team player and looking at the discrepancy between funding of the men and women's programs and the debacle that had around um, the whole overspending, we'll just leave it at that. Um, I would like to see better equity in resources provided to the men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but the person I am now having a much bigger picture and being involved within the NCAA and understanding the importance that it has in the growth of the game for women and in particular how it can affect our overall success as a country for our women's national team in both 15th and 7th. I'd like, if I could pick one thing, I think to have our national governing body support the NCAA initiative. Um, support it with proper explanation of language, with media. Um, I would say financial backing and the way that some of the other NGBs did for their emerging sport. Um, but we go bankrupt, so that's probably not going to happen. But this is my wish list would be those things because we are, it is happening and it will happen. We will become a full NCAA sport, but it would ha- happen much faster if our NGB got behind us yeah and they historically have not done that and have not done it well no so what kind of advice would you have and do you have for young female rugby players have fun don't be afraid to express yourself and you know there are ways to be involved in rugby that involve being on the field whether it's as a player as a coach or as a referee but we need more women in the game. We need to be more visible, more vocal. So get involved at some level and encourage other women to do so, especially little girls. Because there's so much that we can take away around sort of like self-empowerment, you know, feeling intellectually strong because of the decision-making piece of the game, feeling comfortable in our skin because it's a sport that does not exclude you around body and the way some sports can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a sport that teaches women that their bodies are powerful, period. So I say embrace all of those things and find your place within the sport because rugby is something I think for women that can be a game changer in sports and outside of sports. On and off the field. Yeah. And you make so many friends. You will yes. always have friends. No matter where you go with rugby, you always have friends. Yes. You can literally go around the world and you'll at least have seven. At least. Yes. I mean, I, uh, well, I, I mean, I went to Cape Town two years ago to volunteer for um, the South African Rugby Union. I worked media for them at Cape Town Sevens. And I mean, I, I coached for seven years at a high school team here in DC, Gonzaga High School, arguably one of the best high school programs in the country, and met one of my former players' aunts while I was there, who I'd never met before. So like, I went out to dinner with her and her family, like, 
small world. And while I was there, I was visiting um, a friend of mine who I met when I lived in Chicago, who had come to the U.S. to play and was playing for like a D3 men's team in the suburbs of Chicago. And it had been 11 years since I had seen him. And so I went over and met his, met his family and figuring out like all these people that we had, like, you know, that we circled over and had in common. And, you know, I volunteered at um, World Cup sevens when it was in San Francisco. And now I have from that experience, and that wasn't even, I didn't travel anywhere, but just, you know, to the other side of our country, Mm -hmm. I have friends all over the world, including, you know, a bunch of new friends in Zimbabwe. So I will be traveling there soon. Um, And it's just cool because, you know, you don't realize it, but like rugby is such a global sport and you meet so many people and it's so welcoming um, of different people, different skills, just like, it's just, it's just a great, it's just such a great sport. Like I'm not doing a really good job articulating it, but the, you know, adventures that I've had in travel and the people that I've been lucky to meet. Um, yeah, like me. Gosh. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> has been, it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been awesome. I mean, I wish we had time on the podcast for me to make you answer your questions. Cause that'd oh my be gosh. fun. Well, maybe we can do a second series where Farrah, where you Farrah get to interview me, Ellie. I feel like you're probably going to have to give me rules. <laughs> <laughs> there would be definite rules on that one. Yeah. And I'd probably break. Yes. 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 For sure. <laughs> so that's everything for today. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you guys have questions, uh, Farrah, where can everybody find you? Um, they can contact me. If, if they don't already have my contact information and they have questions about any of the stuff that we've talked, they have questions about whatever. They about the NCAA? Or? <laughs> so general questions about the NCAA, sure. Um, if they are – otherwise, go to the university website because um, we are not allowed to – regulations um so i would just say that they can reach out through to tori rugby okay perfect so you guys can reach out tori that's t-o-r-i at tori rugby.com or you can email me directly at ali at tori rugby.com so we hope you had a good time today and we will talk to you guys soon thanks so much for listening Finding Your Mana is written and produced by Tory News and Media, part of Tory, the original rugby influencer. Music by Islanders. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. I am so lost in and around the winding of the rolling paper cycle and mindful to no end of realizing and of Compromising, head out the window, smiling. Oh, and why though did I understate your arrival? But that blindfold on myself couldn't take the sight of you. The line in the sand I drew, coffee in a rush like caffeine.